0: so IKEA makes storage affordable.
1: When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love
2: with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country? The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
3: Hop, hop, hooray! Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?
2: Do you hear any birds? No. (laughs) Recently... I went on two expeditions looking for birds. The first was with a friend of mine, Stu, on the side of New Hampshire's biggest, most famous rock pile, Mount Washington. It's almost like snipe hunting. <laughs> we're, we're going snipe hunting. <laughs> we're
1: looking for little foot. <laughs> Cousin of Bigfoot.
2: In spot number two, a much smaller hill with two friends of the show, Dave Anderson and Chris Martin host of NHPR's long-running Nature Facts podcast, Something Wild.
4: These birds live in a stone fortress of granite.
1: Yeah, or big hollow logs. That's another place they might know.
4: Abandoned buildings.
1: Yeah, old abandoned buildings in the woods.
4: And rocky
2: den sites like this. In the first case, on Mount Washington, with Stu. This is great. We're looking for the Bicknell's thrush. love the sound of birds. Yeah. A small, unremarkable songbird, brown on top, gray with little spots on the belly. In the summer, it's only found in high-elevation forests in the northeastern U.S. and southeastern Canada, and there's only about 100,000 of them total. In the second expedition, on the little rocky hill with Dave and Chris, we're looking for one of the Western Hemisphere's most ubiquitous birds, the turkey vulture.
4: Um, if they feel trapped, they will regurgitate on you. Cool. They hiss. They have a naked wait, head. Wait, do they hiss first? We'll find out. Okay. <laughs>
2: That's why i brought my sunglasses. <laughs> Supposedly, Dave knows where one of these majestic scavengers is nesting. Up on Mount Washington with Stu, as you heard... No. ...we struck out. <laughs> but down lower, with Chris and Dave looking for the turkey vulture... There he is.
5: Whoa.
4: So right now, my adrenaline is redlined. That just scared the crap out of me.
2: After scrambling up the rocky slope, We spooked a fully-grown turkey vulture, six feet of silent black wings, a wrinkly, bald, pink head, out of its nest. She or he spent the next 15 minutes flying in high, lazy circles above us.
1: The other one is probably out gathering food right now. I wouldn't expect it to be in here, guarding the young, if there are young, um, which there should be. Would they be eggs or chicks? There could be eggs, but at this time of year, June, they're probably chicks. But it's hard to say until somebody takes a look.
4: Typically one or two. Can we go closer? Yeah. Oh, we're going in.
1: I'm going closer.
2: (laughs) I'll, I'll follow. The nest is not really a nest. It's just a crevice in a field of boulders. And actually what Chris and Dave did was send in the guy with the microphone first. The entrance was too small to stand or to crouch, so I had to sort of slither in on my belly. Oh my gosh. By the way, we cleared this with Chris, who is a biologist with the Audubon Society. So how, Chris, how close can I get before I'm I'm being problematic? And right there, just a few feet from the entrance, two fluffy little turkey vulture chicks. Oh my gosh, they're tiny! (laughs) So, two bird-chasing excursions. One for the rare and difficult-to-spot Bicknell's thrush, which ended in failure. The second, poking around in craggy corners for turkey vultures, a success. These two birds, the turkey vultures that we found and the Bicknell's thrush that we didn't, they're representative of a trend that's underway, right under your nose.
4: Um, I think turkey vultures are just about a perfect creature. They are a bird that can be seen by... Almost everyone in the hemisphere.
1: The Bicknells pigeonhole themselves into a pretty narrow ecological niche. And if these habitats disappear from our mountaintops, I don't think the birds are going to just find a different place to go.
2: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Today, it's the tale of two birds. One, the turkey vulture, almost universally reviled, but they're also pretty amazing in their own way. The other, the Bicknell's thrush, is a local celebrity, the target of research dollars and enthusiastic bird watchers, but it's in a tight spot, literally and figuratively. And the story of these two birds actually tells us a story about our world as a whole. It tells us where we're headed, toward a world of songbirds and high alpine gardens, or toward a world in which turkey vultures inherit the earth. Okay, right here at the top, I want to introduce you to an idea. You know how natural selection works. Random mutations make individuals that are slightly different, slightly more able to succeed, all that. Now, one thing this does is, the longer a species hangs out in a specific place, the better and better it gets at living in that place. They become really incredibly good at finding food and surviving, much better than species that range more widely and live in many different places. This is called specialization. And as long as habitats are not changing very much, it's the logical conclusion of natural selection. So now that you know that, natural selection drives towards specialization, let's take a look at the Bicknell's thrush, starting with the guy who discovered it.
1: On June 15th, 1881, believe it or not, I know the exact date.
2: That's wildlife biologist Chris Rimmer, He's basically the world's expert on these birds.
1: An amateur ornithologist named Eugene P. Bicknell was hiking around on Slide Mountain in the Catskills of New York. Hiking
2: around and sees a bird that he doesn't recognize. It's a thrush that he doesn't recognize. And that was unusual for him.
1: So as ornithologists did in those days, he pulled out his shotgun. And he collected the bird.
2: Just in case you didn't know this, Audubon, like James Audubon that the Bird Society was named for, also shot a ton of birds. Bicknell shot two of them and
1: picked them up. Examined them in his hand, still didn't recognize them, and thereupon sent them down to the Smithsonian, where they were identified as a new uh, subspecies or race of the gray-cheeked thrush, which is a much more northern and widely distributed bird.
2: Case closed, right? Well... Fast forward a hundred years. In the 1990s, along comes this Canadian.
1: Biologist, a taxonomist, a zoogeographer named Henri houlette He worked for the National Museum of Canada in Ottawa.
2: Something about the Bicknell's gray-cheeked thrush thing didn't quite sit right with him, so he gets to work. So he examined specimens in museums. Finds very slight differences in the feathers and body sizes. He then listens to them singing.
1: The songs of the two species, which are slightly different. And if
2: you play the song of the one species so that the other could hear it, they just didn't react, which is weird.
1: Because if you play the song of a Let's say a song sparrow or a robin to another robin. Usually they're going to react because they think there's an intruder on their territory. they got to drive it out, right?
2: And then comes the most important bit of evidence.
1: The final nail in the coffin. He tested
2: their DNA and found that they were different enough that probably the two species stopped breeding together around a million years ago. So he writes all this up in a paper brings it to the authorities.
1: To the uh, the sort of god squad of uh, ornithological taxonomy, the American Ornithologists' Union Checklist Committee, and they accepted it. And so in 1995, the the switch was made. Bicknells went from being a subspecies of gray cheek to being its own distinct species.
2: Let me just be clear about what this is. This is a small population of birds that a million years ago started living further south than its former compatriots. Because they've now become separated, the two populations stop breeding with each other. But this happened relatively recently in evolutionary terms, so there haven't been enough random mutations to make them actually look different. You can't tell them apart. People say they can. I don't believe it. But science tells us they're different enough to be a new species, though a new species that is almost indistinguishable from the old one. And there is nothing that birders love more than a new species.
1: So we're doing 20-minute surveys at each point.
2: This means... People care enough about them to design a study to keep track of them called Mountain Bird Watch.
1: And I can still hear that winter wren. He's really far away.
2: And that's why we are on the side of Mount Washington at the beginning of the story. Every year, a bunch of volunteers and a few college students paid by Chris Rimmer's organization, the Vermont Center for Eco Studies, go up and very carefully, very scientifically, count birds. That first one you heard was Nate Lawner. And here's another. Kirsty Carr.
4: What I think is so cool is that it's endemic to the Northeast, and
2: it's like it's our bird. It's our bird, and it's you
4: know it's globally rare, and it travels all the way down to the Caribbean area. You know, to like the island of Hispaniola. I guess is this place where it overwinters the most.
2: So you see. In the summer, when they're breeding, Bicknell's thrush only lives in high-altitude forests in the northeast of the U.S. and the southeast of Canada. And then in the winter, they fly south. And some crazy number, maybe as much as 90% of them, spend the winter on Hispaniola, mostly in the Dominican Republic. Just think how crazy that is. There are lots of big islands down there. Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica... But the thrushes are picky, and the vast majority of them go to this one 30,000 square mile island. This bird is a specialist. It can survive in just one kind of habitat. There are lots of specialists out there. Koalas, for example, can only eat eucalyptus leaves. Piping plovers can only nest on sparsely vegetated beaches. The monarch butterfly caterpillar can only feed on milkweed leaves. The Big Nels thrush is like those, more famous, specialists. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology says it has one of the most restricted breeding and wintering ranges of any North American bird. If anything goes wrong in the places it lives, it's got nowhere else to go. Now, in contrast... Allow me to reintroduce you to...
4: Turkey vultures are just amazing in that they can eat disease and neutralize it.
2: The turkey vulture.
4: Turkey vultures can eat things like an animal that has died from anthrax. Um, They can also eat an animal that's died of botulism toxin um, or cholera. The turkey vulture can eat it and it doesn't affect the turkey vulture in any negative way.
2: Our turkey vulture enthusiast, by the by, is Katie Fallon, who wrote Vulture, The Private Life of an Unloved Bird.
4: I actually went, had a few other possible subtitles for the book. One was Vulture, Eat Your Heart Out, and um, (laughs) another one was uh, Vulture, Happy Entrails to You.
2: (laughs) The crux of Katie's book is that turkey vultures deserve some cred here for cleaning up after us.
4: We... Unfortunately, um, aren't as fond as these of these birds as I think we should be because of the great service they provide.
2: Most of what makes turkey vultures so amazing is how incredibly well adapted to eating dead things they are. But since that's gross, I'm going to intersperse gross but cool turkey vulture facts with some straight up cool turkey vulture facts here. So... Turkey vultures' stomach acid is roughly 10 times more acidic than human stomach acid, which means by the time it gets to the other end, their waste is both clean and very acidic. So as a strategy, they deposit it all over their legs.
4: Um, That helps cool them off if it's hot, but we also think that that liquid waste acts as a sanitizer and kills bacteria that might be on their feet from standing on a carcass. So it's sort of like they um, carry their hand sanitizer with them.
2: Right? Gross. But cool? Straight up cool? You know how you see them soaring all the time, lazily tipping their wings back and forth in the hot air?
4: Yeah, they can soar for a long period of time. They've done some uh, studies where they've put implants in turkey vultures to monitor their heart rate and their um, respiration rates. And they found that when a turkey vulture is soaring, its its uh, heart rate is about the same as when it's asleep.
2: <laughs> oh, that's it's pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah, my heart rate goes up if I'm if I'm sitting in a chair versus lying in a bed. Okay, 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 just a couple more. Gross cool turkey vulture heads are bald so they won't get rotting meat chunks stuck to feathers when they're jamming them into carcasses. Regular old cool, even though most birds can't really smell at all, turkey vultures noses are so good that in one case study, a bunch of farmers were shooting and burying groundhogs only to find them dug up and eaten the next day.
4: They have documented them being able to smell something like a dead rat underneath leaves in a forest. Uh, and they've also documented turkey vultures um, actually digging up carcasses that have been intentionally buried.
2: And all of these various evolutionary talents add up to an extremely successful bird.
4: They breed from uh, South Central Canada throughout the most of North America. Central America, and all of South America. They're even on islands, Caribbean islands, um, the Falkland Islands has turkey vultures. They're a bird that can be seen by almost everyone in the hemisphere. Um, I think turkey vultures are just about a perfect creature
2: so they're like an amazing generalist.
4: Yes, they are They are an amazing generalist, exactly.
2: A generalist. They're thriving everywhere. They can nest in a rocky talus slope or in an abandoned warehouse. They don't need a very specific set of ecological conditions in order to survive. They take what they've got and they work with it. There are lots of these cockroaches, rats, ravens, raccoons, and jellyfish. Quite often, generalists do a good job living alongside humans. I mean, if you think about it, we're really the most obvious example of a generalist. So we've got one very rare bird that needs a very specific habitat to survive. And another that can live almost everywhere.
0: So Ikea makes storage affordable. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious.
6: New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete. And getting one source of truth is like... Pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. thirty seven thousand. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. Net Suite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. Twenty-five. Net Suite turns twenty-five this year. That's twenty-five years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com/podcast25. Now, you've
2: probably heard this part of the story already. Species are disappearing many scientists believe we're in the midst of something that will eventually be recognized as a mass extinction event. And those extinctions, they're coming for the specialists first.
5: Yeah, so I'm uh, Romain Julliard. I'm working at uh, the the National Museum for Natural History in
2: Paris. This is Romain Julliard, who came up with a way to mathematically define what a specialist species is.
5: Since... uh the beginning uh, of our survey, which is now 25 years old, that on average specialist species population uh, size have decreased by 20%.
2: But this is the story you've heard already. The other half of the story is that specialists are being replaced by generalists.
5: And it's uh, almost balanced by the increase in uh, in population size of uh, generalist species.
2: Almost balanced. So while specialists are declining, Generalist species are growing now. Romance studies birds, and we have been talking about birds, but this is not just a bird thing.
5: There, there's really a striking common pattern that specialist species are declining in everywhere.
2: So, all around the world,
5: and that was true in. Uh... Coral, fish, marsupials in Australia, the bicknells thrushes, and species like them, and bumblebees in the
2: in the UK, and uh, are struggling. Yeah, and some
5: plants also. And the
2: turkey vultures, the generalists, are doing better. They're actually getting more numerous. Just one particularly terrifying example, a few years ago, the first study ever to try to estimate global jellyfish populations came out, and it found that in 60% of the world's oceans, jellies are on the rise. The headlines that followed, jellyfish are taking over the oceans, we're headed toward a jellyfish world. What's the deal? Well, it's really not a surprise.
5: Well, it's most likely uh, habitat degradation. Uh,
2: uh, I mean, it's the most uh, parsimonious explanation. The most parsimonious explanation. If you only know how to live in one place, and that place is changing because of logging or invasive plants or increased forest fires or not enough forest fires or whatever the problem is locally, you're in a tough spot. And that's the story with our bird, too.
3: No matter how much is done in North America, if in the wintering range, uh, there, there are no, um, uh, no changes, it's, it's, it's a bottleneck.
2: This is Yolanda León, executive director of Grupo Jaragua, a conservation organization down in the Dominican Republic. While we snooty New Englanders think of the Big Nails thrush as our bird, it spends half the year in the Caribbean, too. Nearly all of the population spends the winter on a single island. And a lot of them are in a single
3: place. Uh, Right now, most of the habitat for uh, many of these mountain birds and other species is in Sierra del Bauruco.
2: The Sierra del Bauruco is a mountain range on the border with Haiti. It's also a national park, the biggest in the Dominican Republic.
3: And um, you would think because it's a national park, it's, it's um, protected and the birds are safe there. However, what we found out was that uh, there was a lot of agriculture going on inside the park. This is all illegal agriculture.
2: This is what's called a paper park. The government declared it off-limits, but its borders aren't marked or enforced. So over time, people have started to cut down trees and grow crops. In particular, wealthy farmers have started to grow avocados,
3: uh, and these are export avocados. So this
2: is like this is like Chipotle, you know, all of the all of the guacamole that we love. Yes,
3: yes, and you know I love avocados. So people say it's like are you, you're a to avocado. I, I love avocado, but avocados don't have to be produced in a national park.
2: A quick aside: apparently, most of the Dominican Republic's avocados go to Europe, not to Chipotle. And let me just put a big old disclaimer here. National parks in developing economies is a complicated, fraught topic. Some subsistence farmers actually were in this park and had it declared right on top of them. And others are folks who genuinely didn't know the park was here because, you know, it's just on paper.
3: Like with the avocado and the farming, there are big players and small players. And I think... Uh, chasing after the small players, the poorest people, is not the best solution. And it's not it's not very fair.
2: But after all caveats about the problems with how Western-style conservation is executed in the developing world, it's pretty easy to recognize that this isn't a good situation for our bird.
3: On the north side of Baruco we do have a good area that seems to be off-limits because of, of road access. And I think that area it's pretty safe, but on the south side of Baruco, if nothing is done in the next two to five years, um, we we are not going to have any more of the the birds or, or any of its fauna.
2: Habitat degradation, a specialist's worst nightmare. And it's happening up on the north end of their range, too.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's one of the most vulnerable uh, habitat types in, in the northeast.
2: Here's Chris Rimmer again. Remember, in the summer, Bicknell's thrush live in a specific type of forest up on the sides and tops of mountains.
1: These forests are predicted to begin uh, getting pushed upslope by warming temperatures, and if these habitats disappear from our mountaintops, I don't think the birds are going to just find a different place to go. They've pigeonholed themselves into a pretty narrow ecological niche. Meanwhile,
2: turkey vultures, they're thriving.
4: 25 years ago, we thought there were about 5 million turkey vultures.
2: Since then, we've made more roads, which mean more roadkill, and also more hot air updrafts to surf along. There's also less shooting and poisoning of vultures going on. And warmer winters probably are better for them, too. Less frozen meat. So today...
4: And the most recent estimates that I've read are, you know, we might have as many as 20 million turkey vultures worldwide.
2: This is the trajectory we're on. The beautiful, finely-tuned specialists, hyper-efficient little motors built to extract calories from their own very, very specific habitats, are on their way out. And as they vanish, the perhaps equally beautiful in their own way, generalists are rising to fill the space that's left behind. You can already see the same starlings and house sparrows and pigeons in almost any city anywhere in the world. In my mind, there's this nightmare scenario where the skies are full of nothing but turkey vultures. The forests and the cities are full of skunks and raccoons. And the oceans are populated entirely by jellyfish. It's the stuff of dystopian novels. It's the jellyfish world.
5: So I I don't think we'll... We we really need to work hard to have the, the nightmare scenario.
2: Ah, a reminder from Romain Julliard. Remember where specialization comes from? In stable environments, specialists actually do better than generalists.
5: You you need really a very high pressure to maintain uh, this homogenization.
2: Specialists are just better than generalists at getting food in their very special niche.
5: If you relax a bit, evolution is really a force that drives to specialization and uh, differentiation.
2: So if we stop doing all the things that we're doing that make life hard on them and the habitats stabilize, the specialists will start to thrive again. And given enough time, We'll even get new specialist species. The problem today is environments are changing faster than evolution can change the animals. Really, if you set your frame of reference long enough—thousands of years, even millions of years—there's very little that the Earth can't recover from.
5: So uh, I, I think we, 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 we i mean, we should still be optimistic and. Uh...
2: So, so are you are, are you optimistic then?
5: Uh, there's no objective reason to be optimistic because the, the 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 pattern is still the the decrease wherever you look at, but it's uh, still reversible. That's uh, the 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 point.
2: That was a very scientific answer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Objective reason to be optimistic. But maybe we should try anyway. Pretty much my motto going through life. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Taylor Quimby, Jimmy Gutierrez, Ben Henry, and Maureen McMurray. Music from this week's episode came to us from Pottington Bear, Blue Dot Sessions, David Seste, Jason Leonard, and Iki Mashu If you've got a second, head online to check out our website, outsideinradio.org. We've got photos of the tiny turkey vulture chicks, and the crevice that I had to crawl into in order to see them. We'll be posting them on social media, too, at OutsideInRadio. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
0: So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome.
6: New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.